We are in, on, um, in the book of Haggai, um, and we are, which is in our, our last message in the book of Haggai. That's page 791 in your pew Bibles. And this series has been entitled, Consider Your Ways. Um, and it's taken from the book of Haggai, which is, we've, we've learned, it's a very small book. It's the second smallest Old Testament book with only 38 verses. And it was written during the, what is known as the post-exilic time um, in Israel's history. The moment, uh, it's the time right after the nation of Israel had come out of exile, after being in exile in Babylon, um, for about 70 years. And if you remember, they were taken into exile because they had disobeyed God and refused to honor Him as God. And they were, they were placing their confidence in their temple and in their status as God's privileged nation, but yet they became complacent and started to disregard his laws. And God uh, warned them through his servants, the prophets. They continually ignored um, his servants. And God finally brought judgment with the Babylonian army and King Nebuchadnezzar, who had uh, came against Israel, and he totally decimated the city, knocked down the walls, and destroyed the Jewish temple in about the year 586 B.C., the nation of Israel as a whole, uh, with just a small remnant left behind, was taken into captivity in Babylon, where they were to be for about 66 or 70 years. And it wasn't until the reign of the Medo-Persian king Cyrus, who had conquered the Babylonians, that the Israelites were allowed to return to the land, and with Cyrus's blessing, rebuild the Jewish temple and establish their identity as God's people once again, because they had become repentant and they wanted to be restored unto the Lord, so God brought them back. And no sooner had they returned in their zeal, they laid the foundation for their temple, which we have to understand is the center of Jewish identity. I mean, it's, it's religious, it's civil. For them, it's everything. It's all-encompassing for them. And they began to lay the foundations of this temple, but then uh, after a celebration where the foundation was laid, just like you see sometimes in, in uh when you have like a ribbon cutting ceremony and they lay the foundation and the people put the shovels out and these guys had laid the foundation, it was a party, but then they became complacent. And not only did they become complacent, they, were, they experienced some opposition from the surrounding nations, so building ceased. For 16 years, the building project ceased and it just laid there, growing, have grass growing all over it. I mean, it's like an unfinished construction project. And so it just sat there. And the people decided to build their own homes, and they figured, well, we can't do that for God right now, but we can try to take care of ourselves. So they, they constructed homes for themselves, and they had all these plans. They would plant all these different crops, but no matter how much they did, they, they discovered that they weren't receiving uh, the full bounty for what they put into it. In other words, they, they had these huge, enormous plans, but no matter what they did, they weren't satisfied, and everything kept coming to naught. They would plant crops, but they would only get half of what they planted in the harvest. They would, they would eat, but they'd never be full. They would drink, but they'd never have their thirst quenched. They would put on clothes, but they, they couldn't seem to be warm. And they kept trying to figure out why. Well, God, through Haggai, says to him, this is why, because you haven't honored me as God, and you haven't fulfilled your commitment to me. You haven't made me a priority in your life, and you've put me on the shelf. You've let me be second place in your life. And, and you need to consider your ways. Are you going to choose your way or are you going to choose my way? And if you choose your way, there are going to be consequences for that choice. But if you choose my way, then you will experience great blessing. 
And we know through the past few weeks that the nation of Israel responded positively and began to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now we come to the last section of Haggai's message, and the building had resumed. It's still ongoing. It hasn't been done yet. It wouldn't be completed for another five years. And that we see happening and being coming to completion under the leadership of Ezra. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah are talking about this about the same period of time. So he is encouraging them about their obedience for what they've done, but he's also giving them a sneak peek to the future. He's showing a bold prediction of their of being obedient to him and showing them that it's much bigger and much grander than they originally understood. So it's not just the obedience now, but he's saying that when the nation responds to me, I'm going to show you what is going to happen in the future for those who follow me. And it's pretty bold. It's prophecy. God is foretelling the future through his prophet Haggai of what will happen. And he's making a very bold claim to this Zerubbabel, who is the civil leader of the people. He's saying that he is his signet ring. And he said, I'm about to do something amazing. I'm going to shake the nations. I'm going to overthrow kingdoms. I'm going to do all this stuff. And it's pretty bold, audacious claim. And I, I, it's hard for us to really fathom what that means until we put it into like a sports analogy. I was thinking of uh, bold claims, and you hear athletes making predictions, like Babe Ruth pointing. There's all this debate, did he point in the World Series of 1932 to call his shot? I mean, in essence, that's what, Babe, that's what God is doing. He's calling his shot. He's saying, this is where it's going. That's what I'm going to do. Or Larry Bird, the great uh, Celtic Hall of Famer basketball player, uh, it was in a game on December 30th, 1986, when Larry Bird Celtics were playing Xavier McDaniel's Seattle Supersonics. In Seattle, the game was tied. Tie game, a few seconds left on the clock, and uh, there's a timeout called. Larry Bird walks up to the other star player, which was Xavier McDaniel, and he goes, I'm going to get the ball in the next few seconds. And Xavier McDaniel goes, I know, I'll be ready. So he goes into the huddle, and the coach, Casey Jones, designs this play, and Larry just kind of looks at the play, and he looks at the coach, and he goes, Coach, just give me the ball and have everybody get out of the way. He goes, okay, there, give it to Larry. So they, they pass the ball inbounds, the point guard gets it, takes a couple dribbles as the, to- the clock begins to tick down, passes it to Larry, uh, B- Larry Bird, but hold on, before I get to the, what actually happened, Larry Bird, after the timeout, I forgot this part, he walks up to Xavier McDaniel and he goes, I'm getting the ball, and I'm going to get it right here, and I'm going to shoot the game winner in your face. Okay, this is how bold this guy is. So um, the, the ball's inbounds now, the point guard gets it, he's got the ball, he dribbles it over to Larry, in that exact spot, Larry turns with two defenders in his face, shoots the game winner right in Xavier McDaniel's face. And, and Xavier McDaniel just went, wow. I mean, that's pretty bold. And as, uh, some people had, uh, I heard some people talk, uh, one coach said, said Larry Bird was famous for talking trash. Uh, and he said, you know, it's not talking trash when you back it up. <laughs> then it's just fact. And I thought about that. I was thinking about that and how he called it. And I think what God is doing is he's calling his shot and he's saying, game over. I'm going to shoot it right here. I'm going to do this. You need to be ready. And either you can try to fight against me and be on the losing team. Or you can partner with me and feel the weight and exhilaration of the glory that's about to happen. Because he said, it's game over. I have set forth the entire creation from beginning to end. 
I know how it's going to end. I win. So you can, I'm giving these words to you to encourage you to remain faithful to me or for those who are far away, they can be brought near and they can experience the exhilaration of knowing and following me. So we're going to look at this prophecy that God has laid forth for us today through the book of Haggai. Let's pause for one moment and ask for God's prayer in our message time. Father, we come to you right now considering our ways. Lord, asking you to bring any sin to the surface of where we have put ourselves over you, any arena of our life of which you are not Lord, Lord, please bring conviction by your Holy Spirit that we might place everything in subjection to you that your name might receive honor and glory. We ask your blessing on our message time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump right into our text. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is December 18th, 520 B.C. He had just delivered another message that same day. The last message we looked at was the same message on the same day. And God says to him, speak to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is the civic leader uh, of the, the people. Um, or the civil leader of the, the ruler of the people. Joshua was the high priest. He was a religious leader. But he's speaking to Zerubbabel, who had been helping lead this project, the governor of Judah, and saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, when he says shake, he's saying, I'm about to do it. The idea there in Hebrew is that's imminent. It's coming soon. Now, soon, for us, we look at it as relative. We go, soon, that was so many thousand years ago. What does that mean? Well, we fail to remember, as the, as the book of Second Peter says to us, a day of, or a thousand years to man is like a day to God. He experiences time differently than we do. He's on a totally different plane. He was far removed from us, yet he is intimately connected to us through the person of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when God says soon, it's different than our soon. It's like with my kids when we're driving in the car. How long till we get there, Daddy? Soon. Now, my definition of soon and their definition of soon are different. Mine might mean two hours. Theirs means 30 seconds from now. So I even had to put it in like a TV show frame. How long till we get there? As long as an episode of Phineas and Ferb, kids. Something along that line. It's their understanding of soon is different to a child than it is to an adult, depending on context. And for God, soon is different than it is to us. But it is the understanding of immediacy. And he's saying then that even though it does require um, us to be ready for it, it could happen at any time. It may be in the next moment. It could be in years from now. But the point that he's trying to make to us is be ready for what I have for you. Now, what does this mean? And he says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's not a small thing. I'm going to shake, literally shake the heavens and the earth, turn everything over. It means that God has a plan, and we have to recognize that his plan is coming to pass. If you want to write that down, that's the first point in your notes. Recognizing that God's plan will come to pass. He's giving them a sneak preview into the future. This is coming, coming soon to a theater near you. This is the trailer. It's coming. This is a a world-end preview. I'm giving it to you to see it, to get ready for it, to prepare for it. That God's plan will come to pass. 
It's not if, but when. We can make all kinds of plans, but we can't be sure that they will come to pass. Just like Larry Bird really didn't know. For sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt. He was making an audacious claim that he happened to be able to back up. But with God, it's different. It's sure to come to pass. Now, we try to make plans all the time, but we know that there are other things that can short-circuit our plans, right? The economy going out, a health report, sickness, a tornado. That changes things real quick, doesn't it? What you're going to do, where you're going to go. All of those change how we look at things. But with God, it doesn't matter what may come. His plans will come to pass. So in understanding that, we must make sure that uh, we understand that God's plan can't be stopped. God's plan can't be stopped. Nothing can stop the plan of God. Once it is set in motion, no one can stop it. It's like an ant trying to stop a tsunami. It's impossible to do. And it's judgment that's going to be, when God's plan comes through, it's going to be awful. See, for we can try all we like to shake our fist in the side of God, but God's plan is coming at us, and it's part of it involves judgment. Now, God is loving, and he's merciful. That's why he's giving us the person of his son to provide salvation for us. But there's also a coming judgment. I've heard so many people say, well, preachers are preaching fire and brimstone. They're talking about love. Well, you can talk too much about love and neglect judgment. Or you can talk too much about judgment and neglect love. It's both. There is a judgment that is coming, and it's going to be awful, and it can't be stopped. But there are signs that God gives us the opportunity to repent and turn to him before it's too late. It's like on August 24th, in the year 79 A.D., one of the worst calamities that has ever happened in the world occurred on that day. That's the day that Mount Vesuvius erupted all over uh, Pompeii. And there were signs that had been going on, the small little earthquakes, little tremors. But the people just started, they, they didn't pay attention and move away. And many stayed there. And even when it really started to rumble, many of the 20,000 residents left. But 2,000 stayed thinking it was not that big a deal until it exploded on, at noon on August 24th. And it shot pumice and ash 20 miles into the air. Miles. I mean, that's right at the, the tip of the stratosphere. And people, Pliny the Younger, who is a historian and the son of Pliny the Elder, had seen it from across the bay in Italy and saw that it just shot straight up in the air and it looked like a pine tree was his description of it. I mean, it literally shot it straight up and people started to wonder what's going to happen. And then it started to rain down within the hour, covering, I mean, inches in an hour covering people. Some of it was so bad that it went to the other towns that were surrounding it, coming at about seven, uh, if I remember, 290 miles an hour of gas and rock and ash instantaneously hitting people at 750 degrees Fahrenheit, instantaneously frying their lungs right there, froze them in their spot. That's how quickly it was. And many of these people just were buried under 75 feet of ash. Inescapable! It was a day of terror for people. And you see people, even the, the bodies, after they had dug into this area and discovered in the 1700s, they had to recreate the cast of the bodies that had decayed. And people even, I mean, it had features of people and babies and parents and people just in a moment struck. 
And it was an awful moment. God's judgment is much more than that. And just like Pompeii had warning signs of what was to come, God gives warning signs through his word of us to prepare for God's judgment that will be much worse than that. Infinitely worse. We have this tendency to think of God just as a little bit bigger than us and not realizing that he is infinitely more so. God's plan can't be stopped, nor can it be spurned without consequences. Spurned, overlooked, ignored, neglected. See, God, we think that God delights in making our lives miserable. We think of God as a police officer. And it's amazing how um, we think of police. I'm amazed at that. I've tried to explain to my children you know, who is that, Daddy? That's a police officer. He's there to protect us. But quickly they learn, that's not all I think about the police. Because then they think, oh, no, there are the police. Why? Because that means they were doing something wrong. Because they've seen their parents slow down. (laughs) Right? It's saying one thing, but it's like we want the police there when we need them, and other than that, we don't want them in our lives. That's how we are with God. Actually, we treat God like a parachute. We hope we don't have to use him. But he's there just in case. See, that's not how we are to be with God. We can't spurn God. We can't just pacify God. We can't put him on the shelf. We have to give our full devotion to him and realize that God doesn't delight in making our lives miserable. He wants what's best for us. That's why he gave his son to provide redemption for us by offering us love and mercy and forgiveness of sins. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. That's what the book of Ezekiel chapter 18 says. Verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. There are many of us that we will delight when someone dies. Someone dies, we think, woohoo! God says, no, I don't delight in that. I grieve. I don't delight in punishing someone and sending them to hell. Turn and live and experience the life that I have for them. So God delights in showing his mercy, and we can't spurn his plan. In essence, we must turn from our sin and live. It, his plan can't be stopped. And must, we, must resp- and, uh, we must instead respond in submission. Submission. We have to submit ourselves to the will of God and get with God's plan. So if you're driving for a moment, and you're headed for the highway, you will eventually have to get on a service road and then up onto the on-ramp and then onto the highway. You will have to merge into that traffic. In order to merge, you'll have to slow down and look behind you to pay attention to the rest of the cars on the highway. That's what you're supposed to do. Some of you don't do that. You just drive right in the middle of the traffic and expect them to adjust to you. I know that you do that because I've honked at you. We've all in some ways done that. But see, if we want to get with God's program, see, we have to merge with his program. He doesn't merge with us. And we have to surrender ourselves to merge into what he wants us to do and submit to him rather than having him submit to us. See, we want to come to God, but on our terms. God says, no, 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 you have to come humbly and submit. And each one of us has to do so without exception. I do, you do. We all have to humble ourselves and submit to him. Now, what will happen if we don't submit? We can say, fine, that's good for you. This is good for me. Well, you can say that all you want, but you can't ignore it. You have to 
surrender to it or you're going to experience suffering. Suffering. Horrible suffering. That's why he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And it means to cause to tremble, to shake violently. See, if we don't surrender to that and respect that, we're going to suffer the consequences of it. Just like, for example, the other day, here in Aurora, our, our tornado sirens went off. Did you hear those? Did anybody hear those? Right? Now, you can ignore those. And what happens then if the tornado hits your house? You're going to suffer for it, for ignoring that warning. But if you listen to it, then you respond accordingly. For us, we heard it, and we went into our basement. We responded accordingly to that warning sign. Because why? Because we knew that if we don't, we could be suffering the consequences of ignoring that. We don't want to suffer the consequences of ignoring God's plan. We want to surrender to it. God is more powerful than us, and for us to fight against him is to our own detriment. Instead of that, we have to be respecting his power. Respecting his power. Now, for us, God speaks through his word, and we must show respect for his power. I'm reading, um, I've been reading the Founding Fathers for the past several months, and now I'm going back. I read uh, all the first few presidents up to Madison. Now I'm going back and reading another one on Washington because he's such an amazing figure. And one of the things that I was amazed at was um, his interaction with the painter um, Gilbert Stuart. Now, Stuart wanted to paint Washington's portrait, and he was kind of a really talkative, chatty guy, kind of a low-brow humor, and he tries to really loosen Washington up, who is famous for being reserved and having control of his emotions and of himself. So Stuart makes a comment to him because he's trying to get him to smile or laugh, and Washington wouldn't do it. And finally, Stuart says to him, Now, sir, you must let me forget that you are General Washington and that I am Stuart, the painter. To which Washington dryly retorted that he need not forget who he is or who General Washington is. Really put Stuart in his place, put him back and said, no, 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 you don't forget who I am. You need to remember who you are and I need to remember who I am. And that was just one example. There was another example where, where even those that were closest of his closest acquaintance couldn't get through. He was always very formal and he never let his guard down, even for a moment. And he, he, uh, there was a, a time when many of his advisors, such as Alexander Hamilton and some of the early delegates of the Constitutional Convention, had made a comment that they couldn't get that close to him, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't let anyone in in that way. And Governor Morris, who was another founding father, was a very huge personality, and he felt he could break in when no one else could. So Alexander Hamilton made him a dare and a bet. He said, if you can do this... Go up to him, shake his hand, put your arm in his shoulder and say, it's so nice to see you in good health, General Washington. He goes, I'll buy everybody here dinner. So the next time they had a, an occasion, Washington invited everybody over and uh, Governor Morris walked right in, shook his hand, put his hand right on Washington's shoulder and he says, General, it's so great to see you in good health. Washington stared at him, stared at his hand, removed it and then just stared at him. It was not a word. And Governor Morris just retreated and entered back into the crowd. He was so ashamed of it. Now, see, why? Because he failed to really understand who Washington was. Now, many of us try to approach God flippantly, forgetting who he is. Realizing that he is God. He's all holy. He's merciful. He's loving, but he's wrathful. 
He knows everything. He is everywhere. He has all power. And we treat him very flippantly. We must make sure that we are respecting his power. Now, through Haggai, we get a picture of how powerful God really is. Look at verse 21. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, he, we can see, first of all, he's going to show his power in a few different ways. First of all, he will show his power by unleashing a worldwide cataclysm. Unleashing a worldwide cataclysm. This is not figurative language, but what will happen in the end times? He will unleash such power on the world that has never been known before. It will be such an awful time that it says in the scripture that many will beg to die and they can't. They will be trying to hide from the very wrath of God. Look at verse 22. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms, of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now the word overthrow there means to turn over the other side and overturn. The idea or this word was actually used in connection with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 verses 21 and 25. See, the idea here is that God will, in his anger, unleash such calamity similar to that he unleashed upon Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone that rained down upon the city until it was completely destroyed, which, according to Jude, verses 6 and 7, is a precursor or a warm-up to what the real judgment at the end of time is going to look like. This is what we see. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. He's referring to the fallen angels who sided with Lucifer in the rebellion before, uh, at the beginning of time, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Some of those fallen angels became demons, but some of them were so bad that they were kept in eternal darkness, not even allowed to reign free until the day of judgment. And he says... Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there is God's judgment is being shown. God is going to unleash his wrath on the earth, but that is not all. Look back at verse 22. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Now it literally reads there, the thrones of of kingdoms, and it concerns the symbols of political and military power of the world empires. They will be overthrown and destroyed. In other words, God will be upsetting the created order. God is going to change everything. Everything that we know that has been established, He's going to change it all in a moment. And the scripture says this that God Himself even created and ordained these orders and authorities. For our lives, as Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 16 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the invisible of the image of, or He is the, excuse me, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. It is through the person of Christ that God made everything. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's saying then that God has created it, set it up, and since God has created it, he can also change it and wipe it away. He's going to upset the created order to overthrow these thrones. 
He has the power to bring down kings and lift up kings. And here, all will fall in the presence of the true and everlasting king. He will upset the created order in ways that are beyond our ability to fathom, as the book of Revelation so graphically lays, for us, lays out for us in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? It's going to be an awful awful day. Nothing will be able to stand against him. Every thought and every deed will be opened and everyone will see for what it is. There are, there are some that who claim to be believers and it will be shown that they either were or were not. For those that who persevered and held on, remained true, lived out the word of God by trusting in him will enter into eternal life. But the other ones will enter into everlasting destruction. We have to remember how powerful God is and not trifle with him. Now Haggai here is referring to the, the, the power of these nations in the next little part here. He re, look at verse 23. He says, I'm about to re- destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. Now what are those strengths of the kingdoms of the nations? He goes on, and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. It's where the people found their confidence. See, the, the chariots and their riders was the military strength. That was where their confidence lied. And that's why the scripture says in Psalm verse 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So don't trust in those things. So it's saying this is where their confidence is. And what God is going to do is he's going to upset the confidence of the nations. And unseat the confidence of the nations. He's going to to remove what they are confident in. He's going to show how poor it is in a moment. Think of the greatest and mightest military uh, that there is in the world. Whether it's ours or whether, I mean, I think back to the 80s and I think how the U.S. versus Russia. And was all these, these, uh, you know, wondering is there going to be a nuclear bomb. I mean, he's going to take all of that in a moment. It's all gone. That's how powerful he is. He will upset the confidence of the nations and where they put their trust. And then he will cause unparalleled chaos. Unparalleled chaos. Now, what do those those chariot riders do? Look back at verse 23 again, the second part of it. And overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. See, what he's doing there is he's causing them to kill each other. It's chaos. It's actually a picture of what is seen in the book of Judges chapter 7 with Gideon. Gideon, if you remember, had about 30,000 men to to fight an army of 120,000. And God says, you have too many men. And if anybody is is trembling in fear, let them go. Then 22,000, actually he had an army of 32,000 fighting fighting an army of 120,000. So there's 22,000 left, leaving 10,000 behind. God says, you still have too many men. 
And then he says, here's how you separate them. When you go down to the brook to drink, those, some of them are going to put their faces in water. Others are going to take their hand and lap it up. Those who put their faces smack in the water, they're to go. And they're to leave. So they do, and it leaves, army with an, uh, leaves him with an army of 300. He has 300 to fight an army of 120,000. And then he tells them, this is how we're going to fight. I'm going to give you a torch. I'm going to give you a clay pot. I'm going to give you a ram's horn. Let's go fight. And I'm sure their reaction was, come again? Because when they, uh, how are they going to win with a clay pot and a torch and a horn? So what they do is, is they go at night. They surround the, the army of the Amalekites and the Midianites. And Gideon says, when you see what I do, do the same thing. So he breaks the, the clay pots that has the torch in them, they see the fire, they blow the horn, and they shout all at the same time, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Wakes these guys in the middle of the night. They think that each torch is a thousand men. So they're scared. Or even bigger than that. And so they think that the Israelites had already attacked them, so they pull out their swords in the middle of the night. They just woke out of a slumber. Have you ever get shocked out of your sleep when you're trying to figure out what's going on in the middle of the night, and you do something just crazy? Uh, one of the guys that I work with, he wakes up and he has night terrors. Okay, He has night terrors. And he said it's really scary because he doesn't know what he does in the middle of a night terror. And then he's grabbed his wife and his son, and just has them in a lock. And they have to scream to wake him up because he doesn't realize what he's doing. Now, I can't imagine these guys getting shocked out of their sleep. They don't know what's going on. They pull their sword, and they just start swinging. And who do they kill? Each other. And I'm sure Gideon was just stared, looked down at that entire scene. It's a moonlit night, and he sees them battling each other and just marveling at the plan and power of God. See, God can cause this unparalleled chaos upon the earth to cause them to go against themselves. He's going to do it for his own reasons, in his own glory, in his own power, so his plan will be seen in all of its glory. Now, when I think about all of this that Haggai is showing us, that, that he's going to have this ruler that, is, that he's going to use as a signet ring, that he's going to shake the nations, that he's going to do all of this, then it makes me stop and thank God that I am a part of his kingdom. Not because of anything that I have done, not because I am better than anyone else, but because I have received his mercy by placing my faith in the person of his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what we all need to stop and rejoice at is our place in God's plan. Rejoicing in our place in God's plan. We need to be rejoicing in that place. Now, God has given us a place in this plan of salvation. We were not deserving of His grace. Instead, we deserve condemnation. We are by nature children of wrath, but through Christ we have been received and accepted because He gave Himself for the payment of our sins. We deserved our judgment, but Jesus took that judgment on Himself. Through Christ we have been accepted. That's what Haggai is talking about. Look at verse 23 for a moment. On that day, declares the Lord, of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, 
and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, when he refers to that that day, he's referring to the day of the Lord that all of the Old Testament prophets talked about. The, the day when God will bring everything to a head and culmination. And then he says this, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Now, we have to pay attention to what's going on here. Because what he is saying about the heavens and the earth and saying that Zerubbabel is going to have this great honor doesn't happen in his lifetime. When he refers to him as my servant, he's not just referring to Zerubbabel, but he's referring to Zerubbabel's descendant. He would use similar language in talking about King David, King David, my servant. But he wasn't referring to David, but David's descendant, which is Christ. Now, if we go into the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we find out that Zerubbabel is a descendant of Christ. Actually, an ancestor of Christ. He will be one through whom the blessing of God would come and judgment would come on the earth. So he's, when he's talking about my signet ring, my authority, he's referring to the person of Christ who has been given authority. See, the signet ring was the authority of and ownership of the king. That when he marked something, you knew it was authentic because he had the authority and the power. It represented that. So when he's saying that I will make you like a signet ring, he's saying that Jesus Christ will be the one who will orchestrate all of these things. That he is my appointed one to bring judgment on the earth. That he is my anointed one. So we have to understand when we're looking at our place that it is all about Christ. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. He is the hinge upon the entire plan of salvation. Jesus has the authority to provide salvation, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And he is the one who will pronounce judgment at the end of time, John chapter 5, verse 22 through 29. He is the one for, through whom we have life. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 28, for as in Adam all die, everyone who is a descendant of Adam, who bears the likeness of Adam, which means we are, we are descended from him, we all have inherited a sinful nature. Each one of us is born with sin. We sin by nature and we sin by choice. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming... Those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are under his feet, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So what that means there is God the Son has been given the opportunity and responsibility of bringing about the salvation of man and he will execute judgment, make everything right, and then he will put the entirety of the kingdom under God the Father. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The three being equal in nature, co-equal in glory and supremacy, yet three different and distinct persons within the Godhead. So he will bring about the salvation of man, and he has chosen us since the foundation of the world. That's why in 
in Scripture, in that passage right there in verse 23, he says, For I have chosen you. He has chosen the Belt, but through him we have been chosen. As Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's about being chosen. That's the second part. Rejoicing in our place means understanding God's Christ and understanding that we have been chosen. Now, some ruffle at that. How do we choose and yet God chooses us? It is the dilemma of the ages. Yes, both are true. God chooses us, we choose him. And I believe that some of us have to be able to choose. We don't like the idea of being chosen because we want to choose ourselves. And there's others of us that are thankful at being chosen. I'm reminded of the the film um, that was done several years ago entitled The Matrix. And there was the Neo, the main character, who goes to this oracle to find out if he is the chosen one. And the oracle says no, even though he really was, because he himself had to choose. So he was chosen, but he had to choose himself. And, and then the oracle looks at him and says, but, but even before getting into that, the oracle says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the vase. And he says, what vase? And he turns and he knocks over the vase and it breaks and shatters. And he says, how did you know that? He goes, what's really going to have a mind job on you later is think, is you're going to ask yourself the question, what if I have broken the vase if she never said anything to me? See, it's the understanding that God has chosen us, and there's, it's a foreordained, but yet our action is still involved. I don't pretend to understand how they go together, but I believe it and I trust in it. And I know that Scripture speaks about us being chosen since the foundation of the world, predestined in Christ, and yet he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Both are true. So understanding that it is God's Christ, and it's also God's sovereign choice. Haggai wants us to know that for us to understand what he is talking about involves Christ, God's sovereign choice, and the culmination of his plan. See, he's going to bring it to a head. God is working the entirety of humanity for a reason. Now, we've had a lot of events going on in this past week in our culture, in our world. And we see a lot of things that were and Scripture considers to be sin, yet man triumphs and says we move beyond that. And the Scripture is not threatened by this. God is not threatened. God is not unclear. God is not foggy on this issue. His word is unequivocal. And how much we may not like it, God is calling it for what it is. And it's not just for whether it's homosexuality. It's whatever sin you want to fill in the blank for. I mean, it's not just something that's just come out of nowhere. It's been building for quite some time. And with with this coming into our world today and seeing this, something that God has said is wrong, now considered to be in some ways normal, we have to look in the mirror and say to ourselves, I mean, it's not, the battle just didn't start here. It started a long time ago with how we looked at the family and even the relationships between a husband and wife. 
and the proliferation of divorce and how we treat one another and how we honor God in our marriages. There's a divorce rate that's even, that's, that says that it's almost exact same line in the church as it is in the world. So let's quit saying, I mean, and, and, and I hate to say poaching on other sins. We all have sin. Now that's wrong. But so are these things. And the degradation of society is partly because we as the church have not honored God as God in those places. That's part of it. And yet God is still working his plan in spite of our disobedience. And it's going to be come to pass. And even the scripture foretells that there are those who have the appearance of godliness but aren't really believers. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse uh, verse 1 through 5 says. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Was that describing something in the future? Or does that sound like something from today? You know, I'm not an alarmist in that I'm not saying that it's going to be, God's going to come back at any, you know, in six years. I'm not Harold Camping. I'm not going to pick a date. But I'm astounded at how much our society has become degraded in the last 50 years. And I, I know what this. God is not mocked. What a man sows, what a church sows, and what a nation sows, we will also reap. And that we will, as a people, experience God's judgment. We are a very young people. We have a tendency to be very self-assured of ourselves. And did you realize that we are a very, I mean, we were called the grand experiment by the founding fathers. The grand experiment. We were built on the exact foundations in, in that structurally, as the Republic of Rome. Matter of fact, the founding fathers all took Roman names for themselves for different things when they were riding in the public square. Alexander Hamilton called himself Publius. Another one called himself Brutus. Even George Washington was called Cincinnatus, who was a farmer who was called into military duty and became dictator to overthrow opposition, and that when that opposition was done, he handed power back over to the republic, something that was unheard of. So when Washington took two terms as president and he handed power over, people couldn't believe it because the only example they had ever seen was till someone had died in power. And he willingly gave it over, so they called him Cincinnatus. And yet we see that our country is following in some ways the exact trajectory of the Roman Republic. And that we are abandoning morality and the disintegration of the home. And will our will we fall just like they did? Our nation is not guaranteed to last. We have to understand that we can't trifle with God, that we must honor him as God. And while we can't make unbelievers follow him as God, we need to make well sure that we are living lives that are honoring to Christ. Because when we don't, that's when the unbelieving world says, I can't believe this because you say one thing and yet you're doing another. And that causes the unbelieving world to become angry. 
It's when we are really living lives in submission to the Word of God and surrendering to Him that He is most glorified. So we must not trifle with sin any longer. We must understand that God's called the end game. And it's game over. But the question for us is, are we going to participate in that? Or are we going to reject it and try to fight against it? Because we do so at our own detriment. God has extended his love and compassion and grace through the person of his son, giving his son to die on the cross. I heard one person say the other day, and I'm going to conclude with this thought. They were saying that why does, if God is in charge, then why is there so much evil in the world? It's always the, the issue that I've seen atheists bring up. And, and as if God is he's, uh, impotent, that he can't deal with the problem of evil. And I said, God is well acquainted with evil, having suffered evil himself for us. He's not aloof from it. He is intimately connected with our suffering and our sins by taking them upon himself, by substituting himself on the cross for each one of us, so that in him we have life. But we must repent and let go of our sin. Surrender to him and receive that which he has given to us and then live lives by the Spirit's power of holiness and honor to him. And then we will receive the joy of of following him. And, And until that day, until he comes back, we continually plead and we're ambassadors for Christ. We don't delight in the death of the wicked. And we can get angry at all this stuff that we see going on in our world today, and I know that I have, but I also weep. And I believe God weeps. And we still call for people to surrender. We're becoming much more strangers in this world. But God calls us to be faithful, to stand for him, for his glory and our joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Haggai. I thank you, Lord, how you have laid this book out for us. Lord, help us to choose your business, not our own. Help us to surrender our selfish pursuits and pursue you with reckless abandon. Help us not hold on to our sin, but to release it, knowing that you paid the price for that sin and we've been freed from it. Help us not to continue in sin any longer. And Lord, whether we as a church or a nation or even as individuals, uh, Lord, we know that we will sow or what we will reap what we sow. Lord, help us to live lives that are honoring to you. Lord, knowing that we are saved by faith in what you have accomplished. And Lord, may you delight in us and help us to have the courage to choose and make the right course of action. Lord, that's what it means, changing our course, doing something different. Lord, if we've been rebellious toward you, we we confess our sins to you now, asking you to forgive us and change us and use us for your glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.